You're listening to Ping, a podcast by Apenic discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, Robbie Mitchell. Apenic's Chief Scientist, Jeff Houston, joins us today for his monthly chat to share some of the interesting research that the community have been doing in the DNS world that was presented at IETF 114 and DNS OARC meetings in July. So, Jeff, how was it to be back travelling and interacting with peers? Yes, surprise, surprise. They've finally let me out of my my cage. I'm not sure the COVID-19 beast has been fully tamed and it was masks up all week. Nevertheless, the joy of being able to do these things in person and actually have these opportunistic conversations and speak to people is indeed a welcome change. And uh, it's certainly been fun to talk about a whole bunch of topics that we've been doing slowly and surely in COVID isolation in our own little cubicles is now sort of more of a common shared tribal conversation. And that's fun. That's really quite fascinating. And so this week, Robbie, I'd like to talk about some of those things because uh, I'm just back from them and I'm very excited. That's great to hear you're energised about these conversations, Jeff. Though it doesn't take much to get you energised about the wonders of the DNS, does it? So tell us about what captured your interest across both the IETF and DNS OARC meetings. Yes, obviously the DNS is everything. We blew up addresses, as we've talked about in the past, many years ago. And what defines the internet these days is not a single flat address space, V4 or V6. What defines the internet is the namespace. And, you know, the thought experiment is if if the namespace didn't work, there wouldn't be an internet. But an equally disturbing thought is that if the namespace started consistently giving horribly wrong answers, the internet wouldn't work. I asked for the IP address of some random name, apnic.net, and it just gave me the wrong answer. It's not very helpful. It's not very good. So protecting ourselves against deliberate efforts to attack the internet at the DNS is actually pretty important. Some just want to attack me or you, but others want to do general mayhem, and they want to attack everyone for one or two names. They want to kind of poison the well so that some name doesn't exist anywhere. It might be for thoroughly moral motives. BigBadEvilCompany.com gets attacked worldwide. Yay. And sometimes it's the wrong motive, attacking an entity or someone to bring it down, to blackmail it, to do something nasty. So whatever the reason, there's almost an industry in trying to poison the DNS. Now, one of the folk who are at the centre of trying to defend against this is Google. That makes sense, since, as you mentioned in our previous episode on why resolverless DNS makes sense, that Google's open resolvers currently handle almost a quarter of DNS traffic. So they'd be super keen to make sure that it and its users are protected against such attacks. Right. And we had a really interesting presentation at OR about Google and Google's efforts to try and protect itself from being fed the wrong data, being fed and deliberate efforts to entice it to believe bad information. Because around the internet, up to about 15% of users, maybe a bit more, do actually believe what Google tell them. This is DNS-wise. I'm like, for search, 90% of us believe what Google search tells us. That's a different problem. But over in the DNS land, an awful lot of folk do believe what Google tells them. 
And of course, there's no real reason to doubt them. And therefore, if I'm going to attack, Google is a very, very big target because I can affect a lot of folk if I manage to put that poison information into Google. So how would an attacker attack Google Resolver? Well, there's kind of two ways of doing this, if you will. One is to sort of lie on the railroad tracks of the packets. If I can get between Google and the authoritative name servers for a domain, and you're not encrypting your data, then if I'm on that path, if I'm sitting almost on the wire and able to intercept that traffic, then with a big enough machine, I can see Google's request. Hi, authoritative server, tell me the IP address for www.potteroo.net. And because I'm on the wire, I can go, hi, I'm the authoritative server for potteroo.net. Insert evil laugh. And, and, and the IP address that you really want is, you know, 10.0.0.1. He, he, he. Now, if I have a DNS sec signed potteroo.net, if the name is completely unsigned, then Google believes it's asked the right IP address. The answer has come back. Looks like a good answer. That's the data. So if you're on the path, it's easy. But what if you're not? What if you're not on the path? Can you still poison the well? And the answer is, using these so-called Kaminsky attacks, yes. Yes, I can. Can you explain what a Kaminsky attack is, Jeff? So let's get into this a little bit. What if I can cause Google to ask a question? But that's easy. I just aim a query at Google's DNS, 8.8.8.8, and it will send that same query packet. Now, I know, therefore, because I started it, that Google's going to ask a question to the authoritative server for potteroo.net. And I even know the kind of question it's going to ask. It's going to ask for, eventually, the IP address of www.potteroo.net. Okay. It's in UDP. It's on port 53. It's in the clear. And I know the IP address of the authoritative name server for that domain name. So does everyone else. It's public information. So quick as a flash, I generate the wrong answer and send it back to Google. I'm using source address spoofing. And, and of course, Google, if I get this right, doesn't know that it's the wrong answer. It's just the first answer. And at the face of it, looks surprisingly effective. So this spoofing, passive spoofing, we saw this some years ago. It was RFC, and for those taking notes, 5452 goes into it in some detail. But it is an astonishingly effective attack if, A, you're using open DNS, your DNS over UDP 53, B, you're not doing any form of source address validation. Well, no one does any, so that's true. And almost no one does encrypted channels, so that's good. So it's kind of open slather. So apart from those, how can we defend against this? Well, considering how easy it is to do this, there are a, a number of defences. And that's what I want to sort of cover through because these forged answers are relatively easy. So 
the defense is interesting. I actually don't know all of the DNS packet. I don't know exactly what was sent, but I can do an educated guess. And the first thing I need to guess is that inside every DNS query, the querier sets an ID, an identifier, so that they can match question and answer. Now, it's just a number. And a simple implementation might go, well, since I've just booted up, the first query is number one. The second query is, wait for it, number two. So if I get Google to query me, and then I get Google to query for this victim I'm trying to poison, I look at the ID of the one that got to me and go, ah, you're up to number 100. So numbers a bit greater than 100 are probably spoofable. They're probably the target. So first defense, use a random number as the query ID. Make it difficult to guess. Problem solve? No, because you're thinking that I might get Google to generate a question or any other victim recursive resolver, and I've just got one shot to try it. I haven't. I've got thousands of opportunities because I can cascade the recursive resolver with a whole bunch of answers with different ID values. So it won't shut down the session based on one bad return? Well, it's a return that doesn't match an outstanding query. It's not bad. It's just I didn't have an outstanding question. It's a dumb computer. You know, it doesn't understand malice. It just says, wow, there's a lot of noise out there in the internet today. I'll just get rid of this stuff where I haven't got an outstanding query. Aha, here's one with an ID value that matches an outstanding query. Bingo. And so in some ways, if I keep this attack running for a week or two, I can get through a number space of, say, 64,000 pretty quickly. And I'm pretty assured that at some point, the poison attack will work just by the sheer power of numbers. With a greater attack strength, I can reduce that window. Surprisingly effective. So yes, we randomize query IDs, defense number one. Not good enough, definitely not good enough. And so the next thing you do is you actually know that the attacker can't see the packet. And so you change your source port number in UDP. Because it used to be the local port number of the query was just a number that was constant for all queries. So you ask a query to resolve, it says, well, I'm going to use for my queries, because I'm going to use port 5028 or some number, and all of them had that number. Oops. So of course now, every query has a new source port number. That brings it up to 64,000. So I've got even more randomness. Problem solved? Well, no, (laughs) because all you've done is increase the amount of time and the number of packets needed to make a successful guess, but you really haven't cleaned up this space. So what used to might take you three hours to do a successful attack with a probability of greater than 50% might take you 24 hours, but that's still not a lot of time. You can't not do it. You have to do this but all you're doing is making life slightly harder for the attacker. You still can't quite get there. And the important thing to note is you're not aware that this is happening either. Well, all that's coming back is a whole lot of bad answers from a valid authoritative server. 
And as a recursive resolver, you can either go, I'm not going to ask that server any more questions. And in some ways, the attack has almost succeeded because I haven't poisoned it, but I've taken that name off the internet. Google doesn't know you exist anymore because your authoritative name server is no longer being consulted. So attack worked in some ways, even if I didn't get the poison. So the poor old recursive has to wade through this torrent of abusive attempts to do the right guess. And interestingly, it's always inevitably going to get fooled. Now, I have seen a V6 answer. And if there was an awful lot of V6 in the internet, you could actually make this happen. Because these days, the low order 64 bits is just the interface ID. And uh, we've experimented, and others have too, of instead of listening on one IP address in V6, you listen on all. Now, what's the right number in English to do 2 to the power 64? 340 trillion, trillion, trillion. Very big number. And as well as varying the source port, in V6, you could actually listen on an entire slash 64 and vary your source address which is devilishly cunning, but there's not enough authoritative name servers running v6 to make this happen. Oops. So nice idea, but no. So can't do that. So what can you do, Jeff? Well, there's kind of a number of issues about why this attack works. And one of them is it's just UDP. And in UDP, it's packet in, packet out. And if it's the wrong source address, you don't know. So the attacker sends an answer back to Google and it's faking the fact that it's spoofing the authoritative name server. So allowing the attacker to spoof UDP source addresses is the problem. Now, we could try and get rid of source address spoofing on the internet. Uh, We could also try and reduce the Earth's temperature by an average of two degrees Celsius. All of these things Actually, I'm not sure they're even feasible, no matter which of them you pick. Never going to happen. We're never going to clean up the internet to stop source address spoofing. Oops. But you can do something a bit like cleaning it up with a construct called DNS cookies. And this is kind of clever. The first time you and I talk, we're going to exchange a crypto value, what they call a nonce, used only once. And every time you talk to me, I expect to see that token. I'm going to use it in the queries, and I expect to see a transformed value back in the responses. It's a cookie. It's almost a secret between you and me. Now, don't forget, the attacker can't see the conversation. They're not in the path. So how do I know the cookie value? They don't. So if I did cookies, RFC 7873, you're getting close to a decent defense against the basic idea. Because now, uh, with cookies, it's very, very hard to someone to impersonate the authoritative server. The cookie says, you either send me back a cookie or you're not the real deal. I can now sort out these fake attempts to guess my random numbers and get rid of the rubbish. So there are a few things now that we're getting there with these countermeasures of randomizing the source port 
uh, randomizing the DNS ID and using DNS cookies were there, right? Well, Google wasn't so sure. So what they did, I thought, was actually really very good. They pulled out every day the top one million name servers that they query, most number of queries, and they test them once a day. They test them to see if they've got cookies. Hi, do you do cookies? And more to the point, do you do cookies well? And if the answer is no, then it's kind of, wow, okay, uh, frowny face, we have to be cleverer. And interestingly, and this is one of the results in DNSOR, of all of these top 1 million name servers that they query, and that's a lot of name servers, it's more than the number of domain names because a domain server might carry a lot. Only 40% support DNS cookies. But they also look at their query volume, their outbound traffic. And you'd think if the big name servers, the ones that host lots, did cookies, although only 40% of name servers, you might get about, you know, 90% of your queries have got cookies. Well, it's the opposite. It's only 12%. Oh, sad face. So cookies are brilliant, but it only really helps with about 12% of the traffic. The other 98%, we're still playing the guessing game. And even with random IDs and random port numbers, we're not winning. Okay, time to do more. And there's an old idea. It's been around for some time. And if you are involved in the DNS and you look at query logs, you sometimes find some very, very odd names being queried. You see, in the DNS, in ASCII, there's no difference between upper and lower case. So you query for example or lowercase, example.com, and you query for example.com in uppercase, you get the same answer because the DNS is case insensitive. But, and this is the neat observation, every answer reproduces the query. And so if I mix up the case of the query name and randomly make some letters in the query name uppercase, the attacker can't see that. And the attacker has to guess which characters have been transformed. And if it's totally random, that's an awful lot of randomization. Except, of course, if you wanted a vanity domain name like au.net, in which case there's only five letters, that's not an awful lot of randomization. But if you've got a long domain name, .com, then this name randomization is actually really quite effective in actually introducing randomness that the attacker has to try and search that space. So randomization of case is, again, for long names, really quite an effective defense. So obviously, Google kind of does that. You've listed all these strategies, Jeff. And given the multiple conversations we've had on this show, I can't help but think that this could all be simplified if we just use DNSSEC. Am I right in thinking this? Yes. This is avoidable if everyone did DNS signing and validation. If we use DNSSEC, then it doesn't matter if people try and inject bad answers into the DNS. If everybody signs their data, and everyone validates, then the answer really is 
good luck, but your attempt to introduce bad data fails. And it's really, you know, the opportunity for all of this badness is because folk are lazy. And interestingly, all of these recursive resolvers to try and protect you and I from badness is there because folk like you and I and all the other name holders are using services which don't do DNSSEC signing. And so maybe we should all sign. Oh, says everyone, but adding all this crypto to the DNS, surely the DNS will just melt. It will be horrible. There will be no DNS. We'll all have to pack up our bags and go home because, you know, crypto is hard and expensive. Which brings me on to a second really interesting presentation, which is actually trying to debunk the case that DNSSEC validation is expensive. This is the presentation by Petr Spasek from IC that you're referring to, which will be featured on the opening blog shortly. Yes. Peter's done a couple of these at DNSOARC meetings. And what he has done is managed to find a real live log of queries from a real live retail ISP in real Europe in February of this year. So this is kind of a snapshot. Now, you and I, if we went somewhere, would have a subtly different snapshot. But, you know, the principle of universality, we all do much the same stuff. And although the details would largely differ, it's much the same. And so he has this log of queries and he plays it back through the lab. He has a recursive resolver and he has two options of these queries. One, don't do validation. Two, do do validation and actually analyzes, because he's connected up to the internet, the amount of time required to generate responses from this log of queries, the amount of CPU time required to do all this, you know, crypto, the amount of IO, the bandwidth that he's using, how much more load does it take when you turn on DNSSEC? Now, the first time he replays them at a rough rate of an average around 9,000, 9,500 queries per second, which is Fair enough for a mid-size ISP. It's pretty typical. What does he find? Well, <laughs> this is the odd thing. For a little over 90% of the answers in the first 60 seconds of the simulation, a little over 90%, there's no difference. No difference in latency. No difference in CPU. No difference in sockets. And the only difference in the first 60 seconds is for that other 9% of traffic. And what's actually going on there is that you're unable to serve from the local cache. These are queries you haven't seen yet. So you've got to load them up into the cache. And if you're validating, you've actually got to do some extra work. Should that 9% have a different latency profile? Because in DNSSEC, I've got to ask a whole bunch of additional queries. What's the zone key? What's the zone key of the parents? What's the zone key of the grandparents? Blah, blah, blah. But again, let's think about this. Most domain names are in .com. So once I get the keys for .com, that's in my cache. Um, and if I'm in Europe, a lot of domain names will be in .fr or .de or, or whatever. And again, once I've cached them, I never have to ask again. And so fascinatingly, Although the ones I don't serve from the cache might take up to one second to answer, the distribution of latency is the same for both 
validating and non-validating. What about the last 60 seconds, Jeff, once the cache is loaded? Well, instead of around 10% of queries, you know, taking more time than it's just from the cache, the cache is now running at 95% of all queries. DNSSEC validating or not, come from the cache, lightning fast. So in some ways at nine queries per second, no different. But he then said, well, okay, some resolvers are big resolvers. They handle a lot of queries. Let's take the same query log and replay it at super time at 135,000 queries per second, which is getting big. You know, this is a few million users or whatever pummeling away at your recursive resolver services. So again, what do we see? That first 60 seconds takes a bit more time because the resolver is actually working a lot harder. And you actually find that validation takes almost one order of magnitude more time. So if it took you 10 milliseconds at some point for a few of these queries, it might take you up to 100. And the difference starts at 89%. So 11% of queries take longer with the DNSSEC validation in the first 60 seconds. But that's just the first 60 seconds. Let the cache go hot, same answer, same answer. Caching is amazing. It just smooths out all these overheads. So the only difference when you turn on DNSSEC validation is actually the amount of memory you're going to use. That's it. And the amount of memory you're going to use from the current pattern of signed and unsigned names is 10%. 10% more memory because you've got to store those keys. Now, numbers will change when more and more people start signing their domain name. Yes. But at the moment, this amount of signing is low enough that the difference is incredibly low. And the real question is, is the difference the amount of signing or the effectiveness of caching? Well, <laughs> if there wasn't caching, the DNS wouldn't work. Oddly enough, the difference actually comes from the effectiveness of caching. And so in some ways, it's kind of, well, let's all do DNSSEC. Let's all do DNSSEC. It makes a whole bunch of sense to me, but there's one more problem, and that's the third presentation. And this was a bit of a lightning job from Firefox's, or is it the Mozilla Foundation's, uh, Eric Rescola. They've been doing a little bit of work in using that browser as a test bed for measurement, a bit like APNIC using ads to do measurement. If you control a browser, as they do, you can actually script in some opportunistic measurement if the user agrees to cooperate. Uh, and I think they do have explicit agreement. So they tried a few things. And one of the ones they tried was actually the browser is over there on the phone or, or the laptop or wherever it is deep in user land. And they used Firefox's DNS module to say, let's try and resolve a name or two. Well, okay, that's nothing special. Hang on a second. Let's turn on DNSSEC. Let's use eDNS0 options and say, give me the answer with signatures, potentially giving you big answers. So you've got to do little things about UDP and, and large packets and fragmentation. And you've got to perhaps do TCP failover. You've got to do all these things because all of a sudden DNSSEC does push the DNS a little bit harder 
than what used to happen in our grandparents' age, right? This is not, you know, your grandmom's DNS anymore. There's a little bit more to it. And interestingly, the failure rate, I wouldn't say was universal, but close to it. Nothing worked. Why was this, Jeff? Well, this gets down into a simple question of economics, I guess, because while a lot of the DNS infrastructure in recursive resolvers, and particularly with authoritative name servers, are run by full-time professionals, and the software is kept up to date. And theoretically, at least it's written by people who know. We hope so. The stuff is actually looked after. What DNS resolution software runs in your modem that connects you up to your ISP? Because there is one. I have no idea. Exactly. Neither does anyone else. How much did it cost the vendor that software? Well, fractions of a cent. How old is it? Oh, you don't want to know. You see, there's this story around the internet about the toxic waste dump that is the edge infrastructure of the internet. It's not built for quality. It's built for price. And while Apple might happily say to users, you know that bright, shiny new iPhone you bought? After about five years, we're not going to provide updates anymore because it's just so damn difficult and it's too expensive and the hardware's getting old and, quite frankly, no. Once it's reached five years, that's the end of its service life. That's what you're buying. If I was going to ask you and maybe a collection of listeners here, how old is your modem? You don't want to know. Um, I'd, I'd say 10 years, Jeff. Right. It's beyond anyone's rational service life. No one serves them. Serves them. There's no updates. You know, you really need to be in high-duty geek space to even think about the question, let alone figure out the answer. And so this is the toxic waste dump. And the DNS in there is just horrible. It's a miracle it works at all. And anyone who thinks they can do DNS sec validation using that stub DNS implementation as kind of the forwarding base, you're dreaming. You're truly dreaming. It ain't going to work. This comes back to the discussion we had a couple of episodes ago about why resolverless DNS makes sense as well, doesn't it, Jeff? Uh, it totally does. And the point that I'm going to make, though, is similar. The, the whole argument for DNS over TLS, even DNS over HTTPS, and DNS over Quick, all of those three encrypted channels, the reason why they make so much sense in this environment is that once you encrypt, from the device outward, that CPE is neutralized. It can't touch it. It's an encrypted tunnel. It goes straight to where you've aimed it. And the real thing for Firefox is, what would have happened if you'd have tried those same queries using Firefox's trusted recursive resolver and using DNS over TLS? And the answer would have been, as we all know, yeah, that worked because it's going to work. So this whole thing about DNS over encrypted channels, economically, it's all about bypassing stuff that will never, ever, ever get fixed. There's no reason to fix it. And when we start using encrypted channels, oddly enough, there's even less reason to fix it than there was in the first place. It's dead. 
Fine. Let's not use it anymore as being a DNS relay. Fine. Done. So that then brings me on, I suppose, to this final thing to wrap it all up. What's the best way that a recursive resolver can stop itself from being spoofed with false answers from this kind of indirected attack? Well, the best way we've talked about is everyone does DNSSEC. And a bit like boiling the ocean, the answer is, well, great answer. Not going to happen. Sorry. So what's the second best answer then? Ooh, authoritative DNS over TLS, a thing we call ADOT, where what you actually do is set up an encrypted session between the recursive resolver and the authoritative name server. Now, can anyone see the query? No, they never could anyway if they're not on the path. Can anyone inject a bad answer using a spoofed UDP source address? And the answer is no, it's an encrypted tunnel. You just can't break in. It's not even TCP where you can, in theory, break in if you try hard enough. Once it's encrypted, the degree of difficulty to sort of insert the wrong packet with the right crypto, et cetera, is close to, you know, don't bother. There's not enough time in the universe to make this happen. And so if we all actually went to this ADOT, authoritative DNS over TLS, then interestingly, we wouldn't need to go through all the rest of this trouble. But is it feasible? Well, don't forget, Google are busy probing the million big name servers a day. And the answer is, well, I wouldn't say overwhelming. It's a long way from overwhelming. But there is one piece of data, and I like this piece of data. The big ones have already moved. Less than 1% of the top million have actually done DNS over TLS at the authoritative server level. Less than 1% of name servers have done ADOT. But those less than 1% account for 6.7% of Google's query traffic. So the really big ones are going, yeah, this is important. If I actually do absorb that marginal cost of actually doing TLS, then I win. Now, is the cost that great? Peter Spashek has actually observed with caching, it's not that great. That's one thing. But think about the very, very big name servers that host tens of millions, possibly hundreds of millions of names. When a recursive resolver sets up an encrypted tunnel, it's hardly going to turn it off because if it's doing a whole bunch of queries, most of them are going to go to the small number of massive name servers. And so economically, it makes sense to actually do encryption because you can amortize the initial cost of the key exchange across thousands or even millions of subsequent queries. And at that point, it's as efficient as UDP. And this is kind of the surprising answer that here we are spending a whole heap of brain power and effort trying to outsmart the attacker by basically the attacker's doing brute force. I'm going to guess every possible number, 64,000 ports of 64,000 ID numbers. I'm just going to flood you with nonsense until eventually one poisons you. And you sit there and go, nah, 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 nah. I'm doing DNS over TLS to the authoritative name server. Try your hardest. It ain't going to work. And I kind of like that answer. In some ways, it's kind of getting beyond the tit for tat of trying to sort of keep pace with the attacker into simply moving the entire space into an area that, although it's not completely impervious to attack, 
it certainly pushed the odds in favour of the defenders, the authentic DNS, and pushed it away from the spoofers and then the attackers. So excited? Oh, yeah, I was kind of keen to hear this. I actually thought those three stories hung together really quite interestingly. That with caching, with amortisation, we can push encryption into all kinds of places. And it's not just about my internet, my secret. It's actually about pushing through legacy infrastructure that's just not cooperating. And it's changing the game against the toxic internet of attack to actually try and lift up the points of mutual trust into an area that I'd like to say it's impervious to attack, but I'm not sure anything's that absolute. But certainly, you need a lot of resources to pull it down when you're using something like DNS over TLS or DNS over Quick. And that's a great story. So I had a fun week. I had a very fun week. If you look it up, you will find the proceedings of the MAPRG, the Measurement and Analysis Working Group, research group of the IRTF, uh, the slides are online and the recordings are online. Uh, I think that was the one where Eric Rascola made his presentation. And for DNS OARC 38, a message from the sponsors is, if the DNS is your business, go and become a member. Help us out. It really needs some help. But you will find a weekend where, if you're at all interested in the DNS, it's a weekend where too much DNS is barely enough. Yes, we're big fans of DNS OARC and all the work that they do. And given that their meetings are in hybrid mode, it's definitely something that's worth checking out if you've never been able to attend one of their meetings in person. Thank you once again, Jeff, for sharing your thoughts with us here on Ping. Uh, as you mentioned, it's amazing how all these different players are seeing a similar problem and have been working on it in their different parts of the world. And they're now being able to come together again and share similar conclusions that you've been talking about for the last year or so. And it's nice to see that the community is working towards this problem and not just trying to rehash the similar ways that we've been trying to address this security issue for so long. I'm encouraged. There's another OARC almost immediately, it seems. I think it's in October. And uh, I'm certainly keen to uh, go again. Um, I think it's in conjunction with the next right meeting in Belgrade. No shortage of fascinating papers without even seeing them. I'm pretty sure there's so much activity and it is so interesting. Indeed. And if you miss it, be sure to check out Jeff's wraps on the APNIC blog from OARC and other technical meetings that he attends. Thanks again, Jeff. Thanks, listeners. Thanks, Robbie. And thanks to those of you who made it this far. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If so, please subscribe, write a review and tell your colleagues about it. Finally, if you've got a story or research to share, get in contact via email, ping at apnic.net or our APNIC social media channels. And be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.